2: My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a work market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. would people want to make friends, I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. What will people pay up for? What inspires customers to pay more for a product It may not be all that different from what the competition may be making? We saw the answer to that question today. People will pay up for prestige! And that insight defined much of the action in the session where the Dow gained 170 points, s and 0.47%, NASDAQ climbed 0.74%. Yep, today we have one of the most amazing displays of prestige power that I can ever remember with the stocks of Ralph Lauren, Estee Lauder, and Apple, three of the most prestigious brands around, all exploding higher. Ralph Lauren and Estee Lauder, get this, they surged 8.4% and 11.6% respectively, both propelled by better-than-expected numbers, while Apple tacked on another 1.7%.
0: That was easy.
2: Thanks to the endless parade of buying since the company reported last week. Can you believe that stuck? Let's take them one by one. Now, you know I've raved, I've raved to you before about Estee Lauder and its amazing CEO, Fabrizio Freida, who has consistently dazzled us with his intellect, his presence, and his innovation. Leave it to the seller of Clinique to put on a Clinic. Today, in his conference call, Estée Lauder delivered some blowout numbers <laughs> with a fabulous guide up. No wonder the stock soared. How about Reflorm? This one's all about the phenomenal leadership of Patrice Jean Louis Louvet, the company's collaborative CEO. Who, CEO who recracked the code for prestige clothing and is running away with the crown. Collaborative, of course, with Ralph Lauren. LeVay's hard work, along with the amazing foolproof reputation of Ralph himself, resulted in a spectacular quarter. Whole new generation of people buying Ralph. Then there's Apple, the ultimate mass market prestige brand. Not only is the Apple Watch crushing a $12 billion industry with a product that looks great, have you seen that Hermes branded version? But the watch also saves lives. I just read a piece in the New York Post this morning about a six 67-year-old Norwegian man who had a serious fall in his bathroom and his Apple Watch automatically contacted rescue personnel. Yet, yeah, not only is it prestigious, it's actually useful! <laughs> no wonder do people pay up for it? And that's without even mentioning the new iPhones that have the same picture quality as a $1,500 camera that makes you look darn good on Instagram. And that's half the point of owning a smartphone these days, at least for the younger generation. All right, you know what these brands have going for them? And this is really important because this is a way to analyze stocks that I have come. i got to write a book about this because it's so good. First and foremost, they hold up when the economy gets tougher. Okay, That is a major tenet of what I'm talking about. I'm going to quote from Estee Lauder's conference call for a moment because Fabrizio Freida explains this concept far more eloquently than I ever could. And I quote, I want to emphasize that historically prestige beauty has been less sensitive to economic downturns because it is a more affordable luxury driven by repeated purchases and loyalty, end quote. It's also a lasting universality to Estee Lauder's brands. As Freda explains, quote, long-term, our industry has strong fundamentals, including favorable demographics, that should drive solid growth for years to come, end quote. See, that's exactly what I want. I want long-term theories so you can own something long-term, not in, out, in, out. That's not what bad money's about. I love the arc that Freda traces out on this amazing conference call. By the way, CEOs watching, please, this is your clinic. I'm not kidding. He says, a key strategy behind our brand success is creating a significant base of profitable repeat business from devoted consumers while attracting new users with compelling innovations and marketing, end quote. And then the quality of our product turns them into lifelong fans, he says. Thanks to this modest operandi, every single brand category in Estee Lauder's major channels delivered Double-digit growth that's extraordinary. While other companies struggle in China, right? You've heard that honestly. Fabrizio's putting up huge numbers. I've heard many tales of well about the PRC of late, but have you ever heard anyone say this, and I quote, luxury brands have been in high demand in China, and our sales mirrored that trend as they increased strongly, end quote. Well, wow. Freyda knows that consumers in Asia are increasingly shopping online. E-commerce has been growing sharply in China, and now accounts for more than a third of Fabrizio's sales. It is a fabulous story. Estee Lauder's in this position because Fred has a history of backing his best brands with more and more resources. Doing what every good portfolio manager should be doing. He's doubling down on his winners while he's letting his losers kind of go fallow. You know, I, I, I read the call and I said, oh, my God, I, I got to call the man. I got to call the wizard. So I gave him a jingle and just said, listen, uh, for me, you help me here. How's to do it? Doing? And he said, well, I said, give me the magic. Give me the formula. He says he's marrying data analytics with creativity to design prestige products. There, data analytics with creativity. Data, he told me, is the new oil. But only when it is connected to creativity does it pay off. This man spends more time writing his conference call than anyone else in the world. I'm not kidding. So, guys, you big shots in the valley, yeah, who you think you know everything, you think all you need is the data, forget it. Not true. You need to look at that data through the right prism. That's why Frey is such an amazing teacher. We all should be his pupils. How about Ralph Lauren? And right, I've been watching the way this Patrice Louvet has been extending Ralph Lauren's tremendous brand power of late. It's built up over the course of decades to a whole new generation of consumers who crave prestige. Last spring, Louvet traced out a very ambitious turnaround plan in his Investor Day. Hey, you know what? I thought it might be too ambitious. I, that, well, that last quarter was a little dicey, but he was able to outperform the expectations in this quarter, proving a phenomenal upside surprise, raising its full-year sales forecast. It's easy for executives to talk the talk, making big plans that turn out to be unattainable, but Louvet walks the walk. When he went over the future of Ralph Lauren at that Investor Day, he laid out five goals. First, win over a new generation of consumers, right? Because Ralph's had been conceived to be a little bit too old. Second, energize core products and accelerate underdeveloped categories. It had been too staid and too many, not in enough new places. Third, drive target expansion in our regions and channels. Fourth, lead with digital across all activities. And finally, I have the app. It's real good. And finally, fifth, operate with discipline to fuel growth. I know, I know. These sound like meaningless business school bromides. Dribble, even. But you know why we dismiss this kind of language out of hand? It's because most execs can't deliver on that. Louvet's different. He's got a whole new fan base fawning over Ralph Lauren's merchandise. As he said on The conference School, one-third of the consumers who bought product from the recent holiday offerings, one-third were new to Ralph Lauren, and a meaningful slice of them were under 35. Holy grail, people. How did he do that? Well, one of the main things he stressed on the call was celebrities, and yes, I love this term, drives David Faber crazy, influencers, people you might have no idea about if you're my age, but they're influencing, uh, even as they, and they especially resonate with generations X, Y, Z, uh, Omega, whatever. For instance, there's, uh, when Pri Pri, that's right, yeah, Priyanka Chopra, married Nick Jonas in India, the bride was decked out in the first wedding dress that Ralph Lauren had ever designed outside of his own family. I love this influencer list on this call. It was remarkable. There's a Nicole Kidman. Hugh Jackman, Alex Rodriguez, Gigi Hadid, Chance the Rapper, Chris Pine, Lady Gaga, Lupita Nyong'o, Eddie Rosen, Rachel So, Cameron Olivia Palerma, and Lisa Detweiler. Okay, I threw in the last one because that's my wife, because I needed to have someone in that list that I've actually heard of besides A-Rod, because it was meaningless to me, which is how you know these people are indeed hip. You combine these influencers with Ralph Lauren's classic products and put them in the right places, and you've got the makings of potential multi-year move. Influencers, thought leaders. You laugh? Stop laugh! Stop laughing over there. Yeah, you. Stop laughing. These are influencers. Pre-pre. Awesome. You don't even know pre-pre is. I studied this. No, no, no. Pre-pre. Get away from her. She doesn't know an influencer from a thought leader. Anyway. Apple, what can I say? Every day I have to. <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> Every day I have to remind people that Apple is still an innovative company. Just like Fabrizio Freight at Estee Lauder, Apple's married data with creativity to produce prestige products that we're willing to pay up for. Here's the bottom line branding matters. As we saw today, the stocks of companies that know how to manage their own prestige can give you some remarkable gains over the long haul. Remember, if your company has pricing power, got thought leaders on board, then it has a stock that should go up over time. Let's go to Rick in New Mexico. Rick!
0: Hey, Jim. First of all, thanks for all the hard work you've done for us all these years. Thank it's, you. It uh, really served me and my family well.
2: Oh, you're nice. Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: You're welcome. Um, so, look, I've owned public storage for about six years now. Yeah, you know I like public general, storage. it's been good to me. Yeah. Yeah, Uh, I've also used one of their facilities, really impressed with their customer service and operations. But, you know, recently the CEO and CFO moved out and new people have moved into these positions in what seems to have been planned successions for a long time in the making. Yes. But I'm concerned because you've often stated that the CXO exits are a serious warning sign.
2: Yeah, I did like that previous CEO. Geez. You know what we'll do? Hey, let's invite him on. And that way we'll find out. Rick in New Mexico, we are not going to let you down. This is an interactive show. I've always recommended public storage since the actual bottom. In 2009, I have liked this stock, but Rick is right. We've had a change in personnel. Let's do some digging. All right. People pay up for certain things. And if you own the stocks in these companies, you can handle what the market throws at you. And that influencers list, they do matter. And I'm not having anybody laugh at that. Oh, man, money tonight. Alphabet's earnings last night make it seem like running a growth business may not be as easy as ABC, but you know what? You see those moron sellers? What, I tell you. Anyway, I'm going to tell you what to make of the company's latest report anyway. Then, in the darkest days of December, one charter I spoke to said you shouldn't fear a major pullback because any week this would present a buying opportunity. I'm checking back with him tonight to see what he says here. And when Robert Herjavec isn't investing in the next big thing on Shark Tank, he manages cybersecurity for some of the biggest corporations on the planet. While data breaches may have declined over the past year, I'm asking him why people are facing a greater risk than ever of having their data stolen. Hey, and how about those cryptocurrency passwords? You got any? Stay with Kramer.
0: Don't miss a second of Mad Money.
2: Okay, look, I mean, there's just no pleasing some people. If you want to run a profitable growth business, you need to walk a tightrope between the value investors on one side who want to cut costs and the growth investors on the other side who want you to spend money so your company can keep expanding. Keeping both groups happy is a real high wire act. In all honesty, I've never seen a CEO be able to pull it off for an extended period. Look, let's take the case of Alphabet. Last night, on what I regarded, frankly, as a pretty darn nasty conference call, multiple analysts excoriated them. Ruth Porat, who's like the greatest, the CFO, great CFO at Morgan Stanley, fantastic, thoughtful person, just excoriated her for spending like a drunken sailor with no end in sight. I was embarrassed. I mean, I, I was a harsh judgment. But then again, when you consider how little Alphabet's long-term projects, also soon as other bets, have made for the company and how much they have cost the company, you can understand why some of these analysts are concerned. I wish there were a more linear relationship between what Alphabet's spending on these speculative bets and all the people it hires and its returns. At times, it feels like there's no amount of money they won't spend in pursuit of who knows what. After all, the only noteworthy other bet that's paid off for Alphabet is Nest. The smart thermostat system, and it's not exactly a game changer. However, what really threw me was a question tossed out by a very good analyst, Brent Thill from Jefferies. Listen to him forever. He pointed out that, and I quote, "The cash position has doubled in the last five years to 109 billion. Yet in the last four years, M&A has been about three billion. Well, which is well below your peers." End quote. And he wanted to know what Alphabet plans to do with all that money. Why wasn't it being put to better use? Why were they just sitting on it? Alphabet's hardly a or Apple has the same issue. Now, Alphabet was circumspect with its answer, but I think Brent's question cuts to the core dilemma of being a big profitable growth company because, in a way, all that cash can be a curse. There's a whole group of investors who want Alphabet to spend less money, so they end up sitting on this huge mountain of capital with nothing to deploy it on except to buy back stock. First, you need to understand Alphabet gets little to no credit for its cash flow because the money's not doing anything for them. They collect a little interest, a big deal. While the company announced a $12.5 billion buyback, That's small change, simply not enough to move the needle for a $790 billion business. Second, when it comes to acquisitions, anything they might be worth buying is already going to be very expensive. We know Alphabet's spending a fortune on R&D. That's why it caught so much flack from the analysts. Even as I told you to buy the darn thing right into the big sell-off last night and again this morning. A call that turned out to be right because I believe in this company and I believe in Ruth Porat. But what should they do with that $109 billion? I don't know. It's hard. And think about what IBM did, for instance. Over and over again, the analyst community had nothing good to say about IBM's endless buybacks and dividends, which is kind of what they want with Porat to give to Google. The company kept paying them out, the dividends. And some of us would appease Warren Buffett, who was their largest shareholder at the time, but he turned out to be a cruel taskmaster. He ended up dumping the stock unceremoniously when it took too long for IBM to turn itself around. Finally, IBM changed its strategy. Late last year, they shelved $34 billion by one of the best tech companies I follow, Red Hat. While they're paying full price here, no doubt about it, the deal merely put IBM in the mix when it comes to tens of billions of dollars worth of cloud spending decisions that it previously didn't have enough exposure to. At first, the market loathed this deal, though. I mean, here are IBM's finally doing what we want, and then it did what we want, and it didn't like it. Stock got crushed. Didn't help that this happened in the fourth quarter when everything tech was falling apart. Lately, though, IBM's come roaring back, especially after reporting a better than expected quarter a couple of weeks ago hey, maybe the Red Hat acquisition was a good idea after all. But the punishment for taking this kind of bold action was so upsetting that billions of dollars were lost instantly. All right, let's consider Apple. Yesterday, everyone was going gaga over this list of potential takeover targets published by J.P. Morgan. They figured these deals might be the magic elixir for Apple, a company with a cheap stock that's got too little growth from its main line of business, the iPhone. I've said repeatedly that Apple should make some acquisitions, but relating them to healthcare not trinkets, healthcare to take advantage of the watch's capabilities. But instead, people seem to want them to bulk up on entertainment, where the company already has some incredible offerings, yet nobody seems to care. How about Amazon? Well, it's spent fortunes to build up its cloud and advertising businesses. They are the best. But because there was a wee bit of margin weakness in Amazon's U.S. retail division for the holidays, nothing else seemed to matter. The stock's com- coming back, as I said it would. But it's doing so in spite of the analysts who once again thought it was just finished after the last quarter. So what should these tech titans do with all of their cash? I don't really have any answers here, but I do know that they shouldn't take their cue from the short-term gyrations in their stocks or the analyst critics, many of whom have become increasingly negative or frustrated with these stories. My advice? You can't please everybody. And in the case of Alphabet and Amazon and Apple, Apple. I think it's a mistake to even try. All right, much more mad money at. You might know him from Shark Tank, but how about his day job? Robert Herjavec works hard to prevent security breaches. What are his biggest cybersecurity worries in 2019? And I know you can make some money off these stock, off of the companies that do cybersecurity. But let's sit down with the Shark Tank man himself. He's not promoting any of these companies. Then after a tough end of 2018, is there upside ahead in this market? I'm going off the charts to find out. And the Fed may not be raising rates. That doesn't mean you shouldn't be putting your money in motion. I'm on one company that could save you money with just a few clicks online and the mouse. I'd say stay with Kramer. I'll repeat this as many times as I have to. When you find an incredible secular growth story, you stick with it. There are some themes that can produce truly spectacular multi-year gains as long as you don't get shaken out when the stocks in question run into a little turbulence. Take cybersecurity, one of the most powerful trends out there. Why? Because within a couple of years, cybercrime is going to be a multi-trillion dollar business. Every second, there's more and more data that companies need to protect. And they simply aren't spending enough to do it. They don't want to. It hurts the bottom line. They think. Don't take my word for this. So let's check in with Robert Herjavec. He is the cybersecurity expert, truly inspirational entrepreneur behind the Herjavec Group, major, well, largest privately held player in the space. You recognize, perhaps, as from from Shark Tank as one of the original sharks. Mr. Herjavec, welcome to Man. Welcome back to Man Money. Robert, great to see you. All right, Robert, I am convinced, I am convinced the more that these trade talks go on, that what this is really about is cybersecurity, not markets, because those come and go. But the fact is, is that we, when we take some of their products in, their products find out more about us than they should. Is there truth to the idea that the Chinese, including the Chinese military, are behind a lot of the cyber, cyber terrorism that they're doing? Uh, my personal opinion is yes. But yes. The
3: U.S. intelligence agency has also warned us not to use these devices. You know, it's the old adage. Why are these people getting these products out there? It's, why do you rob banks? That's where the money is. Why does everybody want to hack the United States? Because this is the greatest country in the world for IP, for
2: intelligence, and all that kind of stuff. But here's what's confusing me. There are places, alphas like Ericsson and Nokia, they compete with this Huawei. They compete with Huawei. People would rather have Huawei. It's cheaper, a lot of people think it's better. But now our government's telling you and basically pressuring people, we don't want you to use it because we believe, our government believes, that it really is embedded intelligence. Is there any truth to that? You've probably been called in to be asked. What do you tell your clients?
3: I tell my clients to be very careful. I mean, the European Union just uh, warned about using those products. There's a lot of warnings from different governments to use it. But it amazes me the large corporations and governments still use it. You cannot beat the attraction of low prices. Oh this my God, so you would me.
2: advise me if I were about to commit a major amount of money to telco equipment that I should not use them? I would not use them. I always, but I'm a
3: cybersecurity guy, so you that's why I
2: care about what you think more than I care about what some salesperson thinks.
3: Yeah, but a lot of these. Companies are trying to build huge infrastructures, and if they can get it for a few pennies Uh lower, they're putting safety as a Are they being penny-wise
2: and pound-foolish?
3: Yes, they are definitely being penny-wise and pound-foolish. But I'm a cybersecurity guy, so I always think you have to build everything with protection in mind. Because saving a little bit of money today and not having the right protection is going to hurt your brand, is going to hurt customer data. Look
2: what's happened with Facebook and Google in Uh Europe recently. If they had brought you in. If Facebook had brought you in and Google had brought you in, would you not have been told them what the authorities are going to be angry about? You know that side too, right? What I would have said to them is
3: you cannot underestimate the backlash of using consumer privacy. The problem is people think consumers don't care. I'm not sure consumers really care, but governments will care. And when you've got the government after you, it's
2: gonna hurt you long term. Yeah, that's true because it turns out that the people are still using Facebook, but the governments have the ability to put you out of business. Consumers want the government to protect
3: us. I think this is one area, Jim, where the government has to protect us because we're lazy. We're lazy as consumers. We don't wanna change our passwords. We don't wanna do that stuff, but we wanna rail from the rooftops and we want the government to step in, and they're going to.
2: I am so good you mentioned passwords and what the government's job should do. I read this article in Reuters. Robert, I, boss dies with password to unlock 137 million in cryptocurrencies. No one knows how to get it because he died with the password. What do we do here?
3: I was just in Canada this morning. We were talking about this. This happened in Vancouver. Canadian. But here's the beauty of cryptocurrency okay. it's built on blockchain, it can't be hacked. That's the beauty of okay, it. Okay, right? I
2: like Completely, that. I don't want to be hacked. North Korean, no. North right? Korea.
3: Here's the downside. Guy dies with the passwords. How do we get at it?
2: Well, how wait, can you crack that?
3: Uh, well, that is the nature of blockchain. But it cannot be hacked. Can't. So I don't know how this was built, so I, I can't comment on this specific environment. But that is the promise of cryptocurrency. It can't be hacked. But Jim, don't you think when we're creating money, or virtual systems that in theory cannot be hacked, that this could be dangerous? Don't we need a way to access some of these systems? Even my fire department has a key key. to the elevator in my building in case of an emergency. This is an emergency. I think there's $200 million of consumer money out there that people don't know if they're going to get back.
2: At the same time, I do read articles about crypto. It's, there is stealing. I mean, people are getting... Right. They're mining other people's crypto, right?
3: Well, we, we publish an annual report on what's going on in the world. Yes, and this is I'm one done. of the things in our report that the basis of one of the reasons hacking is so big right now is because of the rise of cryptocurrency. You know, before cryptocurrency, if I hacked you... And I want you to give me money. I'd have to meet you somewhere (laughs) in a dark alley, in a coffee shop. (laughs) Cryptocurrency, completely anonymous. You can send me lots of money and I never know where it came
2: from. All right. Now, when are we going to be in a situation where our eyes don't glaze over when we hear that someone hacked our stuff? We're literally it's like we're not protected where it's like we're out a lot of money. You're desensitized and you already yes, don't care, care.
3: Right. as a consumer. But you know what? If you're an enterprise and you're a big corporation listening to this, you better care because the consumers may not care. We may be desensitized. But if I get hacked from one retailer, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to another retailer. That's absolutely true. And so
2: the onus is on the enterprises, on the government to take care of us. Okay, now let's say I'm, uh, I am convinced with the Internet of Things that someone is going to hack a major double-decker tractor-trailer with no driver and run it into me. I am convinced that's going to happen. Can we make those hack-proof? Uh, very or- difficult. Very, and you're assuming that Be- that kind of attack hasn't
3: happened yet. Right. So there was an attack in December. On the LA Times. Didn't get a huge amount of publicity, but it was significant because they hacked their back end systems for payroll, came in electronically, and affected the printing presses. So the LA Times stopped printing for two days, I believe, or one day. On the surface, not a massive attack, huh. but what's significant is they went through an electronic back end system. Total Internet of Things. Internet of Things. And because the presses are connected with the Internet of Things, they stop mechanical systems. So when you go through an electronic world into a mechanical world, you've crossed over. So what are mechanical systems? Pipelines, all kinds of hospital systems, everything in the world. The world is becoming so interconnected, and all of those access points can be hacked. If you're a big corporation, you've got to listen to this. You've got to take care of it. Wow. I uh, worry about this. this is this
2: big? We know it's big. I,
3: I worry about it too, Jim, but it's you know it's good for our business. I don't know. But mean, it's it like fric- right no. and but that's one of the reasons you're seeing so much
2: growth in the internet stocks and the cybersecurity stocks. Absolutely. And they act great constantly. That's Robert Herzhavik. He is the cybersecurity expert that you want to learn from. He's an entrepreneur. Of course he's a shark. I always get scared when I listen to him, but then again, <laughs> he's got some ideas about how to make it stop. Stick with Craig. Yeah. Thank, Thank you, Robert. Good. Thank you. Back in the dark days of December, when the carnage seemed endless, we highlighted the work of Bob Marino. He's a brilliant technician. He also happens to be my colleague at RealMoney.com. I blog there every day, as well as being the publisher of RightViewTrading.com. He told us that a bottom would soon be at hand. Now, Marino's call wasn't quite perfect. I mean, this was on December 11th. We still had one more downturn before the averages started rebounding after Christmas. But he really nailed the bigger picture. More importantly, Moreno explained that you shouldn't fear the major pullback that was coming because any weakness would represent a buying opportunity, and that was right as rain. What made him so confident? He took a long-term perspective, and based on that zoomed-out view, He figured that even with the hideous declines in October and November, the averages appeared to be going through a surprisingly normal period of consolidation. The kind of thing that temporarily interrupts a bull market, emphasis on temporarily. And look, if you believe Marino's analysis, you would have known that the horrific sell from late December was, in fact, a buying opportunity, which is why I wanted to go back to the well. So how did Marino get it so right two months ago? Where does he think the market's going now? First, let's take a look at the weekly chart of NASDAQ Composite. When we last spoke to Marino, he expected that the Nasdaq's November lows would hold, okay, because that's where we bottomed in February and April and October, too. That floor of support did fail, though. You can see the failure right there. But after a huge decline over a very short period of time, and that's where I call it, of course, our own, I call that the mini bear, the Nasdaq came roaring back, all right? And the mini bear did not take us out of commission. Now, Mrenner points out that the late December decline here was what's known as a measured move or symmetry. That's when you figure out the size of an advance or a decline based on the size of a past swing in the same security. This is something Kyle and the Fibonacci Queen, is often, also talks about quite regularly, and we featured our stuff most recently. In October and November, the uh, Nasdaq gradually lost about 700 points. When that floor of support was broken, it quickly dropped another 700 points. 700, 700, okay? By the way, Myrna points out that you saw the exact same thing happen in the Dow and the S&P 500. These are measured declines. Once the Nasdaq started climbing again, we roared higher, and it only took a few weeks to clear the old floor of support at about 6,900, Meanwhile, the slow stochastic oscillator, an important momentum indicator, turned very positive very fast. You see that? The Chaikin money flow, that's our friend Mark Chaikin, okay, which measures the level of buying and selling pressure, has returned to positive too. Momentary dip and then boom. There's one more point Moreno wants to make about this uh, bottom. So check out the NASDAQ's logarithmic monthly chart, all right? This is very important because this is about symmetry again. In a logarithmic chart, the y-axis doesn't show price. It shows percentage moves, okay? So a run from $5 to $10 is the same as a run from $500 to 1000 because these are both 100% rallies. Randall likes the logarithmic chart because it does a much better job of putting the, uh, of the market's longer-term gyrations in context. So say when the Nasdaq broke down in December, it dropped another 9% bringing the total peak to trough decline to 24%. The thing is, the logarithmic chart shows that even a 24% decline isn't that unusual. Okay? Renner points out that you have periods of consolidation, pauses in a long-term bull run, and to him, the decline here looks very similar to what we saw from uh, the Nasdaq in 2011, 2015, 2016. Plus, even at our lowest point right around Christmas, the Nasdaq never broke down below its eight-year trend line. So let's see. You know, everyone was freaking out, but look at this. It held. Remember those days? Holy cow. Remember, I was down in Costa Rica and I called in and I said, No, I think it holds. And I was looking at something like this because it just seemed to be too far too fast. Why does Marino bring this up again? Well, because if he's right that the market's in a consolidation pattern, that's not great news for the bulls. He says that based on past experience, the Nasdaq's likely to trade sideways for at least the next seven months. Why? Because the last couple of consolidation periods each took at least a year to play out. We're not even six months into this one. So with that in mind, where does Mariner think the market's headed? A little more complicated chart, please. Okay, take a gander at the daily chart of the S&P 500. Here you need to look at the support and resistance levels. In addition to the daily levels, he also included support and resistance from the longer-term weekly and monthly charts. Now, even after a 16% run from the December lows, Marino thinks the S&P still has more room to run. Okay, so that's good news, right? Still not there. Uh, the RSI, the uh, Relative Strength Index, here we go. Uh, which measures price momentum, continues to trend higher, all right, and it hasn't yet reached overbought levels yet. Taking money flow has soared over the last month. Look at that, okay? Reflecting massive institutional buying. That's what we see every day. Moreno thinks that these new buyers are the kind of investors who won't be panicked out of their positions by short-term volatility. Remember last year when we were down gigantically, uh, biggest decline, right? It was the one today. You know, it was a year ago today, and that was because of all those VIX issues. All right, still, Moreno thinks there's perhaps a 3.5% advance, before the S&P runs into a weekly ceiling of resistance at 28.18. Now, how can the S&P break through the ceiling? Mariner thinks the 28.18 target is easily achievable. And if the technical indicators remain positive and the uptrend is still intact when that happens, he expects the ceiling resistance to be broken in pretty short order. That would clear the way for a further 4% move taking the S&P back to its October highs, which most people thought we could never get to, and the upper end of the monthly consolidation channel. I've got to tell you, I've been, I have been—I was in touch with people who said this will never, ever be seen again. He says it's entirely doable. Moreno says it's unclear how long this process will take, but he has a very clear idea of what happens when the S&P reaches its old highs. He expects the whole market to be a synchronized reversal. Basically, the S&P has a ceiling at around 29.30, Okay? And because Marino believes we're stuck in a consolidation pattern for at least seven more months, he believes we'll head right back down once we hit those levels. Well, that would be horrible. In fact, it says the SP could potentially sink all the way back down to 2350, which is the longer term support. So obviously, we would have just a massive panic if that occurred. That's not what anyone's looking for. Go all the way back to the December lows. I know I, I'm not looking for that. What do you think he says to do? Look, if Marino's right, we still have a considerable amount of upside, about 7% for the run uh, exhaust itself. However, you can't allow yourself to get too exuberant if you believe in what he says. Marino thinks we'll be in a consolidation pattern until September. So until then, he expects the market to trade in a fairly wide range with the S M B bouncing between 23.50 20, no, and 29.30. For now, we're headed higher. But he says you should use these key levels as entry and exit points until the consolidation pattern finally comes to an end later this year and the averages resume their long march higher. The bottom line. Look, Bob Marino came very close to calling the bottom of December, and his analysis was spot on. If you believe his thesis about the market that we're in a consolidation period, one that will last until September, then you can afford to be optimistic, but be cautiously optimistic right now. However, at least until September, Marino says you should be a seller. If the averages approach their October highs. That's around 29.30 for the S&P 500. Eventually, expects to break out from these levels, but it won't happen anytime soon. Still, even if he's right and this rally will lose its steam after another 7% gain, that's still pretty good, but I am very wary, and it makes me want to do some selling after this run, because I sure don't want to see this level again. Stick with Craig. It is time! It's time for the light round. goes on. And then the lightning round over. Are you ready? Skate? That is time for the light round. because goes on. It goes John in Connecticut. John.
0: Good evening, Dr. Kramer and a big bo booyah from Bridgeport.
2: Well put. How can I help?
0: Thanks for taking my call and for all you do for us home gamers. Cypress Semiconductor beat expectations on fourth quarter earnings and revenue, unlike some others in the sector. I'd like your take on where the stock can go from here, oh, given their the projected stock can lower go higher. guidance.
2: I read a good piece in the Street.com about it, and I think that the company is incredibly cheap. Let's do some buying here. I need to go to Tim in Illinois, please. Tim.
0: Thanks for taking my call. I enjoy your show, Jim. Why, thank you. A while back, you had a Maurice Taylor Jr. on your show. He was the CEO of Titan International, ticker
2: TWI. That was a wild wheel company. Yeah, The stock was doing quite well at that time. However, now it seems to have fallen on tougher times. Have they lost market share to their competitors, or is it just a decline in the overall ag market? What the hell is that stock doing down there? Five. Holy cow. I got to tell you, I got to do more. What this? five. Five. That, uh, oh, man, let me do some work. I mean, that is like a major, major downturn. Unfathomable. We have to do work. Let's go to Ben in my old home state of Pennsylvania. Ben. Hi, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. No pleasure. My pleasure.
0: Totally. So, so with all the hype and uncertainty around the trade talk, um, do you believe Alibaba will be affected by
2: the
1: outcome of the trade war? And um, whether you see any, uh, uh, you know, I've been dealing go? with a lot
2: of these fashion guys lately, and they are, and a lot of retailers, and they, and a lot of guys, suppliers, and they say over and over again, Jim, get more positive on Alibaba. So I will. You should buy it. Bye, bye, bye. There you go. It's been an amazing, amazing way to move product. How about we go to Bill in Florida, please, Bill? Jim, Bill. Thank you for taking my
0: call. No, oh, uh, you're quite welcome. Very quickly. Very quickly. I feel remiss. I first said thank you. Your 10 years of tutelage allowed me to put two kids through college debt-free there
2: you and go. retire at the ripe old age of 57. This is why I still do this darn show. Thank you so much. Every day, my wife says, why do you still do the show? Because of you. That's why. How
0: the well, hell? the one I want to talk about, is I don't do this very often, but once in a while, I see a stock I take a chance on. I'd like your views on Avon,
1: A-V-P.
2: Uh, you know, maybe they can make it. I don't know. I saw that the way Tupperware blew up recently. I, I'm not gonna you know, look. You can lose. It's two bucks stock, but you can lose it two bucks. What can I tell you? That's how I feel about it. Let's go to Kevin. Thank you for the comments, though. Kevin in Minnesota. Kevin. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. Hey, thanks for all you do, man. Love the show. It's, oh, it's thank my you. favorite. Favorite show on TV. Honestly. Get out of town, man. Come on. Come it, on. It's true, man. It's true. Really? It's true. Better than not The Punisher? True, All right. <laughs> hey, hey, I'm torn on this one, Jim. Uh, ticker symbol FLWS. 1-800-Flowers. They the me quarter. Out? They crushed the quarter. Um, but this is traditionally when a lot of people come in to buy the stock because of Valentine's Day. I got my cards. How about you guys? But I don't think you should buy it up here. I would not be a buyer. Let's go to Ready in Washington. Ready.
0: Hey Jim. Booyah. Done. What's up? Um, I want to. I want to ask a question about the streaming video company uh, Roku.
2: It's a winner. I mean, I, 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 I'm not fighting Roku anymore. It's a winner. There, there's the top of Roku. I can't take it anymore. And that, ladies and gentlemen, the conclusion of the
0: lightning round. The lightning round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade.
2: For those of you who keep some of your money in a savings account, there's a very good chance you're being ripped off. Even after nine rate hikes from the Federal Reserve over the past few years, the average savings account pays out just 0.1%. I think that's crazy. I know this isn't normally something we talk about on the show, but I need to bring it up. Because many of you are leaving a lot of money on the table here. Now, last Friday, Jason Swig wrote a terrific piece for The Wall Street Journal where he laid out a bunch of ways you can get more interest on your money that's that's just kind of sitting there. He mentions a company called Max My Interest, a privately held intelligent cash management service that identifies top savings rates for its customers and automatically shuffles their funds into these higher-yielding accounts. The company says its net yield for investors is 2.38%. That's 228 basis points higher than the national average. Now, that may not sound like much, but if you're sitting on a bunch of cash and savings accounts, that's earning next to nothing. This is a great deal, especially since Max My Interest only charges two basis points per quarter for its services. I think this is an Intriguing story. So let's dig deeper with Gary Zimmerman, He's the founder and CEO of Max by Interest, to learn more about his innovative service and how you can make sure your bank isn't ripping you off. Mr. Zimmerman, welcome to Mad Money. Great to see you, sir. Great, have Great a seat. Thank Thanks you, for coming here, Gary. Now I've got to tell you, Gary, it's very funny because I read the article like a lot of other people, and I immediately called my personal CFO and I said, "What am I getting?" I was mortified. I've been doing exactly what is wrong. I hadn't thought to check. I think people got lulled into the idea that you're always going to have low interest rates and that's no longer the case. And You guys are doing something about it.
1: Well, this is exactly what happened. If you think about the ten years since the financial crisis, interest rates have been near zero and everyone is sort of lulled into the idea that just cash doesn't pay anything. But it turns out it does. In fact, all this time it has yielded (laughs) something, but most people don't know about it.
2: Well, a a lot of banks, I I don't want to, I mean, I'm I'm on the conference calls, and some of the great earnings that these banks are getting, and they even reveal it, is that people haven't figured this out. They're making fortunes, but it's time to start helping these people.
1: Well, it's actually true. About 50% of the profit of the major brokerage firms in their wealth management divisions comes from the spread that they earn on client cash. And so what we want to do is really bring more efficiency and transparency to this market and help people earn more on their idle cash.
2: All right, so I give, I don't necessarily give you my money. You advise me, I tell you what I have, and then you shift it. I mean, where, how does the whole process
1: work? Well, this is actually very simple, and it started during the financial crisis. I was working at one of the large banks, and the bank had a near-death experience, and I said, wait a minute, every dollar above the FDIC insurance limit would leave me as an unsecured creditor. And so I started looking for ways to keep more cash safe. And in the process, I stumbled upon online banks and the fact that they're able to deliver higher yield because they don't have brick-and-mortar costs. Right. So the way that Max works is really simple. You take your existing brick-and-mortar checking account, you don't have to switch banks, and you link that to a portfolio of higher-yielding online savings accounts. And then what Max does is every month we monitor interest rates, and to the extent that we see a higher rate available for you, we simply ask your banks to send funds between your own accounts so you're always earning the highest yield. Well, I mean, why would the bank want to cooperate? Well, it's interesting because we originally built this service independent of the banks. We thought that the banks, we really weren't sure how they would feel about it. It turns out that it's actually better for the banks and better for the clients.
2: Well, why is it better for the banks? It seems to be that your ignorance is their bliss.
1: Well, there are two different types of banks. So we think of um, one category you might think of as brick-and-mortar banks, or we, we call them relationship banks, right. where you have a checking account, a savings account, mortgage, bill pay, direct deposit. You have a whole relationship. And... Uh, No one wants to switch banks, and that's perfectly fine, but we think we can help them do better with savings. So Max actually anchors that relationship with the core relationship bank. So you're happy to stay there because they're able to serve you all these other things. For the online banks, what we've done is taken away customer acquisition cost. And the typical online bank pays 200 basis points to acquire a customer. And we think of that as basically a tax on the system. By eliminating customer acquisition costs, the online banks are able to pay higher rates and in fact on the Max platform some of our banks are now delivering preferential yield that is only available through Max because they're able to acquire these customers at no cost.
2: Okay so I recently, because I had been aware, we switched. And we switched, I'm not going to mention to who because that's not fair, but it took three weeks to switch and in the interim um, my daughter needed some money and they really weren't able to get it to her. And I'm trying to figure out why Uh, that speed is no good, right? It should be much faster.
1: It should be much faster and when we started Max We were stuck with the legacy process of opening an online bank account you go to the website you type in all of your information you find a check you wait three days for trial deposits and we said that's not going to work that's too slow so what we engineered is what we believe to be the fastest account opening process in the country. So on our website, our our customers can now open a new savings account in three clicks and 60 seconds.
2: Now, uh, recently, S&P bought a company I I know because in the street we owned it called Rate Watch, where they have the highest rates. They tell you, but they haven't integrated it with this. Would that be something? Could I go around the country and find it? I mean, let's say rates keep going up. Mm -hmm. I want to
1: earn, you know, three if I can find
2: three. If if you check it out and it's
1: okay, would would you, I mean, it would be natural. Well, that's the whole point is all of these deposits are sitting in your own bank account and they're all FDIC insured. So best rate wins. What's interesting is because our customers tend to be fairly large, they end up parceling cash across multiple banks so that it can all be fully insured. And so even the lowest yielding bank on our platform is still attracting average balances per customer that are higher than what they attract on their own when they pay for advertising. So it's really a win-win. When I read about it,
2: now I hear about it. And candidly, uh, Celine mentions someone I know her father. uh, He was my boss at Goldman Sachs. I read it and I said, I don't know why I didn't do this. I hope I can get my money back from who I gave it to because this is too smart. I want to thank Gary Zimmerman. He's the CEO of Max My Interest. I hope you enjoyed that. And one day maybe the company comes public. This is the kind of company that's working for me. That's what I want. Stick with Kramer. Great. thank you. Okay, some pluses and minuses with Disney tonight. ESPN plus two million subs. You need to see that continue to grow. The slate of movies in the second half, maybe not as big as we thought. You knew that this was going to be a challenging year. I say think about owning Disney for 2020. I know it's February 2019, but you got to take a longer-term view. Like I said, there's always a bull market summer. I promise i find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow.
1: I want people to feel like they just learned something. We have journalists in the far corners of the universe. I can't wait to get all of those resources under one hour-long newscast where we can deliver the facts of the day clearly and concisely in context and with perspective and tell people what's happening what it all means. Get the truth, not the spin. The News with Shepard Smith.
2: Subscribe to the podcast today.